and welcome back to War Starts at Midnight, a podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Jacob Graves. Howdy. And Peterson Hill. Master of the Muffin. <laughs> Guys, what are we talking about today? Well, we've got a review of Paul Thomas Anderson's introspective and indulgent musical meditation on survival and forgiveness, Magnolia. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with PTA's three-hour epic. And of course, we will wrap up the show as you always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey guys. Hey Chris. Did we lose the master of the muffin? Hey there. No, no, no. I'm right here. <laughs> Great. So let's just start out as we have been with this series with sort of a prologue and kind of discuss where we stood with Magnolia before coming in for this this review today. Uh prior to this viewing, I had never seen Magnolia, and that's a place I'll never get to again. Now I will have always had seen Magnolia. That's true. Uh, what did what what did you know about Magnolia going in? Was there did you literally have any? literally not a single thing? Did not even know Tom Cruise was in the movie until you guys uh, said it last week. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I had just said that. I think I mentioned to you guys in my head. I'd always uh, thought of Magnolia kind of similarly as I did to Eyes Wide Shut, but didn't know a single thing. Just. Hmm. Kind of knew the the cover of it that has the magnolia on the cover and uh, or the poster or whatever you want to say. Didn't know a thing. Didn't know the cast. Didn't even know uh, PTA directed this until I started looking at IMDb when we started talking about this podcast. One that in 1999 did not make it into the Graves household. What about you, Peterson? Yeah, so I think I saw this for the first time definitely in college. It was either 2006 or 2007. And... I'll say there was a good two-year span where if you asked me, I'd probably say this is my favorite movie. Um, I, it, it, For whatever reason, it was my entryway to PTA, I think. Uh, I think it was the first I'd seen of his movies. I might have seen Puncher Club before. But uh, I I really – I love this thing in a way that is kind of indescribable. And it was the perfect age when I saw it because – all of the formal rigor of this thing, the loose insanity of it, um, and then seeing a director really take a take a movie like this and kind of make it a hundred percent their own, even with even though PTA is constantly referencing people, this is absolute PTA. I've only seen this movie once before, and it was I was trying to do the math. It's probably been probably close to twelve, thirteen years. And boy, was there a lot that I didn't remember. There were it, it was interesting coming back to it to kind of see the things that were still burned into my mind. And then the, be it characters or scenes or moments that I had just totally sort of lost. So a lot of this was like seeing it for the first time again, like that, the prologue with sort of the, you know, the black and white footage and the, when Ricky Jay's going through, um, narrating like i forgot any of that was in the film at all it was it was at least half like seeing a, a movie for the first time for me this time what was your impression overall the first time what were coming into this viewing generally positive no this was the one that i was this is probably the movie that i was the most concerned about um 
just in general with this series. This is the movie that put my perspective for a long time that PTA was a great filmmaker, but maybe maybe I didn't care much for him as a um and we we can get into this when we get in the review, but like it improperly uh sort of aligned my brain for what defined Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess. Because I had seen I had seen Boogie Nights before this. I had seen Punch Drunk Love before this. But when I saw this, I was really it was when I was getting deeper into really investigating film. And it it kind of put me in this place where I was like, okay, I want to see I want to see his stuff, but maybe he's not totally my guy. And it's only been like in that long decade plus journey that I've come back to realize that he is one of my guys. Okay, whatever that meant. Sure was helpful, Ice-T. I want to talk a little bit more about your background. You made um, some references Mark, earlier to uh, subjective human experiences and, and terrible things. And um, actually, um, I'm confused about your past, mm. is the thing. Is that still lingering? Just to clarify. It's so boring, so... I uh, just want to clear useless. some things up. Mm. Um, yeah, excuse me. See, thank you, love. It's a funny thing that this is an important element of Seduce and Destroy. Facing the past is an important way of not making progress. This is something I tell my men over and over and over. This isn't meant... Um... So I try to teach my students to ask, what is it a native? Are you asking me that? Yes. Well, in trying to figure out who you are well, and native how... What? You... Well, Frank, I'm saying that in trying to figure out who you are... Um, See, I have more important be... things to well, put no, myself into. Well, no, it's all important, into. Frank. I think this is something very important that you might need to think about putting yourself into. Um, not really. Frank, it, it's not like I'm trying to attack you here. No. I just... Okay, hey, hey, this is how you want to spend your time. Then go, go, go. But you're going to be surprised at what a waste it is. The most useless thing in the world is that which is behind me. Chapter three. So Magnolia is this big, epic, sprawling, and at the same time condensed story that PTA kind of started as this small little intimate film and continued to add layers and layers and layers to as he started writing characters for specific actors and um, and that sort of thing. So like initially he thought it was going to be this intimate meditation on kind of pain, suffering, loss, all these things that we see throughout the film, uh, but then morphed into something else when, I mean, it was this combination of, I think, him being driven by the loss of his father to cancer a few years earlier, and the fact that Boogie Nights did really well, and New Line said, um, well, we'll write you a blank check for the next one. And... <laughs> Boy, did he cash it. So, Jake, I'm I'm very intrigued. I'm always intrigued to see when the tipping point is going to be. This is the one I was most concerned with you watching. But man, I because I had I had a reaction that I didn't expect I would have watching it this time. So I'm kind of hoping maybe you did as well. What did what did you think of Magnolia? I want to defer just a little bit. What did you guys think I was going to think of this movie? What, where, where did you? What, what were the possible set of reactions you oh, I thought, thought I would have? I, to this I movie? thought you were just gonna not show up to record initially. <laughs> okay, 
Okay. Peterson? I thought it was going to be one of two things. You're either going to come in here and say, I think PTA is the greatest living filmmaker. He's a genius. I think it defines all – this defines the rest of his work for me. I am now an acolyte. Or I'm never watching another movie again. <laughs> this is the worst art form. I hate everyone. And you become a hermit and live, you know, on Walden Pond. In all seriousness, I was afraid of this turning into another lobster. No. So so I, I very uh, much – um uh, appreciated watching this movie in a way that I did not expect because you guys had kind of set the the stage that this was going to be a, a challenging one that it was going to be long and it and it was it is and it's I do have long. some issues with it but I love the crazy ambition in doing movies like this um I I I like the scope and the scale of it and how sprawling it is but it's tight at the same time um I like the the uh, theme running throughout it and the and the little threads that are being drawn there it's clearly the work of a director who knows exactly what he's doing and making that appear on screen even if it's not entirely my cup of tea i i i it's one of those movies that i watched and i was like no okay at least this is something different from anything i've ever seen in my life hmm wow that's a uh... Pretty much a glowing endorsement for me for a P.T. Anderson movie. Yeah, for, for best, Jacob Graves. That that needs to go on the poster. Best one so far. Best one so far. <laughs> That's what I have to say. Okay. I, I know stuff's coming up ahead, but best one so far. What about you, Peterson? I mean, this is one you probably have the bunch of definitely seen it the most. Did did you have anything, any new kind of insights this time around? Or did it did it shift around for you in your ranking a PTA what what was your kind of reaction revisiting it i mean what what did you say it's been what 7 8 years probably 7 or 8 years uh, i think it was probably 2010 2009 so i guess maybe 8 or 9 and i'll say i i still love it i still really respond to a lot of it um it's not my favorite PTA um i think i knew that going in since this movie came out i think i've had a little bit of time to kind of stew in his movies more. Um, mm-hmm. So right now it's kind of not middle of the pack. It's kind of upper, upper third, but um, I still love it. And I still am really drawn into it. Um, and I'm drawn into the characters now. And I love, I love the artifice of his direction. And I think I love how kind of how much he's sticking himself out there as an artistic talent and saying, this is everything I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's his characters in this movie that really solidify my love for it. So, yeah, that's that's me. But, Chris, what about you? I mean, it seems like maybe it went down in your estimation. No, it went up. It Sorry, if I – my I was, I was totally expecting that this was going to be my, like, well, this is the hump that we have to get over and then we'll get to I – know, I know it's more or less smooth sailing from here. Um, I, I really appreciated this and I was pleasantly surprised, like, because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't hate it when I first saw it, but it was not one that I ever felt I really needed to revisit. And with that, there was so much that I'd forgotten that in that just, there is this propulsion to the way, like he's, he is making this movie as if he's a first time director who may never be able to make a movie again. That is the energy 
in this, but he's someone who has honed his craft already. And so his skills are already super sharp. And so that's really interesting that he, you know, he comes in with that energy, but also that, uh, that skill set already in place. And I think that's part of what makes this movie really shine is like you're saying, Peterson, there, there are all of these sort of things. I mean, from the incredible tracking shots, you know, there's the one that goes into the, uh, what do kids know, um, studio and goes, you know, up elevators and through, you know, all sorts of doors and stuff. There's several of these explosive and he uses them other times as well. Um, but uses them really effectively here. These explosive, like almost, it's almost like the camera is running and zooming at the same time. I think the first one we get in this is the TV where we were introduced to Frank TJ Mackey. And it's just sort of an exciting um, explosion of motion. And it almost feels like it's all going to fall apart at any time. The wheels are going to fall off the wagon, but they never do. So, from a pure like cinematic standpoint, I was really blown away this time by the the craft on display. But then also, I thought I was in for a downer, and I totally forgot what this story was about and how it plays out. And so that was a nice surprise as well. Um, so in in general, I, I'd probably still put it for me personally, probably middle of the pack PTA. But um, appreciate it so much more than I did before. Man, this thing is a, a nutty movie. I, I like. I, I like your your um, comment that this is like a first time director just throwing everything up there, and that that's kind of the impression I got. But it, it in no way with the the um, the lack of finesse that a first time director would have. Like it's clearly very very put together. It's a very full idea, um, and and so incredibly ambitious. And and how much cocaine was he on? This feels like a, a super coked out movie. Like, it just feels like it's so like, oh, no, 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 no. It's going to be three hours and 15 minutes long, and it's going to cover everything. And there's 10 people, and I'll, I'll show you the chart on the wall where I tied them all together with yarn so you can see this guy's this guy's dad, but he doesn't know he's this guy's dad. And it got it like it felt like it was a, a, a coke dream. I'm wondering, Jake, for you, because... I know, I know your relationship with PTA. We've talked about mm-hmm. a couple of his movies now. I know the way you feel about his worldview. Did this change your thought of the way he thinks about the world and the way he thinks about people? I, I don't know. Going into it, I thought he was a cruel god who um, was cruel to his characters, uh, and uh, uncaring at best, but probably cruel. And in this one, he chose to rain frogs down. On his tortured character, so I'm going to say it did not change my opinion on his worldview, <laughs> not not even a little bit. And and if I had this card in my back pocket, I would have played it in every conversation we've had on this so far. Fun fact: uh, he wasn't even aware of what is it Exodus eight two. He didn't know that like he he was not aware Bible of that was basically story. A thing. He was he was <laughs> he was sourcing it from a completely different uh, place. Oh, oh, we're going to rain, rain down frogs and everybody. Like in the Bible, I'm not familiar with that one. <laughs> uh, I'm not no, literally, one. somebody was like, oh, you know, you know, that's in the Bible. He's like, wait, really? <laughs> it was after he wrote the screenplay and everything. But so, uh, you know, I, I think this movie, obviously, there's a lot this movie has on its mind. 
And I think the the moment that solidifies it to me as a not just a good film but a great film is the moment I guess it's about two hours into the movie, about two thirds of the way through, it's been basically constant score or constant music, a cacophony of sound. Yeah. And then it just stops. Yeah. For a good twenty minutes, it stops and it slows down. And it's right at the point where I think if it kept on going that way, it would be too oppressive. And I think he, that's when PTA realized, all right, I'm going to slow this down. I'm going to really, really, really let these people live in these quiet moments, these quiet lives, these quiet lives of desperation. Really, they're more loud lives of desperation. But they're, that's the moment where I think it shows his maturity, not just as a filmmaker, but as a person of emotional intelligence understanding how we as viewers are going to look at this world. Which is so interesting that he chose to have those super quiet moments because he had other moments where the audio was – or the, the the songs were super competing with the dialogue. He even had moments where the score is competing with soundtrack and dialogue. Yeah. You've, you actually have yeah, – yeah. Like it's – it is very intentionally um, a just – sort of jet propulsion. I was thinking about, you know, our discussion of Rushmore and Peterson, your observation that it, you know, you're not really sure where it's all coming to in the first two thirds and then it sort of blooms. And I feel like with, with this, you know, Rushmore sort of like quietly pieces itself together with this. It feels like he's like breaking the sound barrier from the get go. And it feels like he's just going to, you know, propel us out into the nether regions of space. And then he actually, but he uses that not as a, like he uses it to set the tone in a way that then whenever he pulls it back, it feels that silence feels so much stronger that oppression being lifted. And we have to sit through a lot of it. We have to get really get through the muck of it. But uh, I, I I think that's a really fascinating use of uh, both you know score soundtrack all of all of that, but then also the like the shape of story. Which as I've been going through all this Vonnegut stuff, you know, I keep coming across him talking about the shape of story time and time again. And one of the things that Vonnegut always did was tried to, instead of just doing, you know, the traditional arc, figuring out, okay, how, how is it the most compelling? And I think he kind of starts at what would be traditionally the end. Like it feels like we're at 11 in the beginning of this film, but then he backs it up to where, like, if you were to map it on a chart, it goes way down. But that place where it goes way down is actually a strange resolve that you wouldn't expect and you can only get by starting so high. Uh, I find that really fascinating. It really like just this is the type of thing that makes him one of our great auteurs in a writer director combo, I think. And I think this is the honestly, probably the first time that we really see that on display and he continues it through the rest of his career. Not just that, I, I thought this was the first time we saw a score that made me think, oh, yeah, no, this belongs in a P.T. Anderson movie. Uh, but also moving a, a bit away from the the soundtrack and the the, um, the pop songs that, that kind of 
layered uh, or added a lot to um, to Boogie Nights to to that score in 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 a similar style that we see going for. I don't know who scored this and if it's um, if it's somebody he used again in the future. Maybe you guys can can help me with that. Yeah, so it's John Bryan does the score here. Um, same people, who, same guy who did uh, Boogie Nights and uh, no Brian was Brian involved in Boogie Nights. He was involved in he was involved in Heart Eight, and then he goes on to do the incredible score in um, Punch Drunk Love. I don't know if he was involved in Boogie Nights. Yeah, Michael Penn. Michael Penn did the music in Boogie Nights. Okay, I stand corrected. Yeah, um, I guess I always thought it was John Bryan, but yeah. So I think I think the music is a key element to why this thing really works. I think it is. You know, I'll say this: this is an opera. In yeah. every sense of the word. Oh, yeah. It is heightened, heightened emotions, heightened lives. Um, it is, you know, performances that are playing to the cheap seats. You know, Julian Moore is exactly what PTA wants out of her. Mm-hmm. And he gives it – or she gives it to him. Same thing. Tom Cruise knows exactly what PTA is looking for. They give him exactly what they want. They're these massive operatic performances. And he matches that in – Obviously, sound, but also his camera in the way he shoots the San Fernando Valley, in the way he shoots these uh, interior moments with anybody in the movie. Because uh, a lot of this movie is interior, and it really shows what a master uh, Robert Ellswood is behind the camera. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, these, the way he operates the camera in this is really stunning it's it's on another level from even what we saw with boogie nights it's it's really it's really remarkable stuff and that's the like it's on a craft standpoint there's not a lot to to complain about here well and then you know you talk about these big performances from like julian moore and from tom cruise and from from others but like then you have jason robarts and you have uh philip seymour hoffman who's his performance is very small and it's almost his performance is, is almost an exercise in listening throughout a lot of this film. A lot of this film is just him reacting and it's such an amazingly great, soft, quiet performance, which isn't necessarily what we really think about for him, but he just kills it and he draws you in. He draws you in as he's drawn in to, uh, to Jason Robarts, you know, at his side as he's you know giving that uh, giving that monologue. Well, and I love so much of Philip Hoffman's work is Phil Parma is over the phone because he's got mm-hmm. probably at least half of his screen time is probably with a phone. Yeah, and he's got that unbelievable moment where he says, and this is a recurring theme. He says, "This is this is the moment in the movie where uh-huh. you help me." Mm-hmm. And I think they have those moments in movies because they actually happen. And I need you to help me. Don't leave me hanging. And I think it really triggers what this movie is really about. It's about desperation, about forgiveness, about people trying to do good in a world that maybe has no version of good or doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to have goodness inside of it. And these people can competing against the dying of that light. Yeah, to to that point, like I'm curious, Jake, where you kind of fall on his perspective on people here, because I think this really, while we get a lot of chaos and suffering and pain 
set up early on and sustained for a while, I think the places these characters go um, shows a heart and a like, I mean, I think just Julianne Moore's character as an example, I think the fact that the the arc that her character takes and the way that she goes to the lawyer and says, you know, like, take me out of the will. I never loved him. She's she's not this bitter. Um, you know, she has she has her own demons, but she's not um, just the trophy wife that you would see in a typical sort of setup like this. There's there's so many of these little I mean, John C. Riley, his entire character is the epitome of trying to be a nice person a solid human being and also being flawed and unable to do that in many ways does your perspective on his the way he deals with people shift at all with this yeah i don't know and and just real quick uh, uh, talking about john c Riley's character it reminded me a lot of uh don Cheadle's buck from uh boogie nights as being that that good guy doing the right things like you said mm-hmm. And so that is a, a character who shows up again. I like that he didn't get f- fully tortured in the same way, but I think it was more about the link between all the characters here. So I, I didn't even view them as individual people because their arcs were all so intertwined. They all had these sort of different experiences on this same roller coaster ride that they're all sort of stuck on. Uh, they 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 might have different seats there. Some of them might be extremely on the tortured end. Some of them might be trying to live a a good life and everywhere in between, but it's all about how they react to these individual things. But, but what I I liked about that is for all these different characters who, who were all, you know, relatively well fleshed out, seeing the ways that they interact with this, even though they, they are uh, in, in this story linked together by coincidence or a greater power or whatever you want to uh, uh, say is, is kind of the, at at the, the, the heart of this movie and seeing those reactions that they take to these similar events. So I don't know if it expands as much on what I think of P.T. Anderson and handling or, or P.T. Anderson's worldview or P.C. Anderson's view of people or anything like that. But more, I, I see this more as just a showcase of his talent, how he can juggle all these characters and keep them fully fleshed out. Yeah, it does help that he has three hours and 15 minutes to work with. Um, but but it it is he he does a, a lot of work on these characters like it, they 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 go a long way. I don't know if that really answers your question, but that that's that was my main takeaway from that. We've been spending a lot of time, all of us somehow, giving praise to Paul Thomas Anderson for this just massive three plus hour film. I do think we should probably get a little critical, though, in in the length in the I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson himself has even, you know, later said that, well, you know, if, if I was to make it today, I would I would just cut I'd, I'd dice it up. I would cut entire characters out. So mm-hmm. with that in mind, are there and I don't know if you guys have considered this at all since watching it. What do you think you would lose if you were to try to trim this down to something a little more manageable? Watching it, I, I don't really know what I'd cut. And the reason I say that is because the movie moves with this insane propulsion. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it does not stop. And when I think about, well, you cut this or this or this, I mean, because you probably could you know, lose some minutes in there. But when I watch it, I don't really know. I can't watch it and see something that glaringly 
can go. Looking at it this time, it, it felt to me like maybe there are things that it'd be trickier in the cutting room. Like, I think you could get there. But ultimately, I think another script rewrite would have been helpful in. I mean, you've got you've got two fathers dying of cancer. You've got and I, I understand he's sort of setting up mm-hmm. this um, sort of these two characters you've got Donnie the quiz kid and then the the young kid you've got you've got all these sort of parallel characters throughout and that's a nice motif but at the same time it's over three hours long i i just feel like there are some things that could have been condensed i it feels like this movie is indulgent in his um you know basically being told hey you got a blank check you can do whatever you want. You can cast whoever you want. And so it's very obvious that he's just like, oh, well, I got to work with Phil Baker Hall again. Okay, well, I got to work with John C. Riley again. I got to work with all these, listening off all these people. And it just balloons into this thing that is, while it's great, it's a really, and I mean, I think you can't lose Tom Cruise. You can't lose Jason Robarts. Maybe maybe somehow you find a way to to make uh, partridge and gator into some composite of one character things like things like that i do feel this movie kind of dwells in a couple places it, it's got a lot of energy but just things could have been trimmed up like i think you could take this movie as is and probably trim 10 minutes off of it and not lose too much but i think on a rewrite you could probably tell this same story in two hours yeah of just of just dynamite i think you can lose seconds and minutes off scenes I just don't think I don't want to see any of these characters go. To me, I don't think I don't think losing any of them gains anything for the rest of the film. You know, you lose an hour of this film, what do you get? You get Paul Hags's crash. <laughs> I don't think that's the problem with crash. These characters are so well like fleshed out and he makes us like them that it would be a shame to have not seen them. But I I I, I don't think that it, it it necessarily would have been worse without any of them. I, I, I'm with Chris on this one. You could have combined or axed certain characters or not gone with, with 10. I, I, by my count, it was about 10 major characters who, who played in there. Maybe you guys have a higher number, but it, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff yeah, going on. Is. Well, and that, that actually maybe is a nice way to get into something that I wanted to talk about. Do you guys want to talk about influences at all? Like, I feel like this is a movie where you can really feel a lot of his influences um, in some pretty strong places. The number one influence to me, and I think it's impossible to not see it just because of where this movie ends, but it's shortcuts because shortcuts mm-hmm. is that big sprawling, uh, Altman film yeah. that is longer than this one actually, but it ends with a cl- cataclysmic event that all these people will remember. I think this is a better film than shortcuts. I like shortcuts, but I think, um, shortcuts is too shaggy. It it is too long. You could lose some of those characters. Well, and and it's very clearly this to me has always been in my memory his big Altman film. And I think it it still is. Like I you know, Boogie Nights has Altman feelings in in it as well, but this really was like in my mind it was he made an Altman film here. I was impressed this time kind of seeing more than that as I um, as I came in, I, I think with the uh, more human, delicate 
touches. I I felt a little more of the Dimmy influence, knowing that he um he really is a huge Dimmy fan and that, you know, that sort of the texture of the humanity um was there. But then also uh Kubrick in a lot of ways throughout the I mean, you know, the way that people scrutinize Kubrick's films for every little detail, I think you could scrutinize uh, Magnolia and in, in the same way where it's like, he's built in these textures that maybe they don't totally add up to an answer, but they build a world like the room 237, the documentary about the shining where everyone's like, Oh, here's my theory on what's going on. Like, I think Kubrick does intentionally build all of these little things in there, but not necessarily to say, Oh yeah, we landed on the moon or I faked the moon landing. Oh yeah. It's about, you know, it's clearly about uh, the, the colonization of America. It's it's not that. It's that he is thinking so deeply in um, building the world, and and I think you get that in spades here. I mean, from the you uh, see eighty twos all over the place, um, which I did not remember at all, but then started noticing because it's in the prologue, which is... I don't remember that at all. No, can, can you can you give some detail there? What what made me tune into it was when the in the prologue, when the kid's about to jump off the roof, uh, there is this rope that's forming an eight and a two, and it was just too perfect that I was like, man, that, f- that had to be set up. And then, and I didn't know what it was that it meant and then go and oh it's because exodus 8 2 is the line about the plague of frogs um so he's even though exodus 8 2 was not an influence on him putting the frogs in it he then used that as a little piece of texture to to add in 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 the way that kubrick would just stuff you know every corner with with things that you could you could drill down into not to necessarily say like, Oh, this is what opens up the answers, but just to say like, okay, explore this. There's, there's a density here. Um, and then also, you know, you've got Tom Cruise coming out to, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. There we go. Uh, you got Futura on his, um, his little PowerPoint, like, it that feels like blatant, obviously nodding at Kubrick at, at that point. Um, so I was I was surprised to see as much of that in this as as there was because in my recollection it was just the the Altman Love Show. Man, I got to rewatch this to find all those eighty twos. <laughs> Apparently, there's I was reading there's like over a hundred references. I'm terrible at catching that stuff. I'm really bad at Easter eggs and. I never spot them. Like, I never spot any of that. The only reason that I caught any of it this time was because that that one little piece was like, that feels too set up. I wonder if that's a thing. And then started seeing it just all over the place. And it's not, you know, it's one of those things that's not, um, he doesn't really draw your attention to it. He just places it there. And if you catch it, cool. And if you don't, fine. Um, but it was it was fun to hunt down watching this time. He has so much humanity. And that's what I think he really gets from Altman is that Altman can really dive into people. Um, you know, something that really strikes me is that after Altman passed away, uh, PTA basically ghost directed uh, a Pretty Home Companion. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, I guess, sorry. It, it was in Almond post, passed right? away right before. Yeah, it was in post. And I think they had to do some reshoots and uh, PTA did it. And not that he's thematically – well, he is thematically more – not that he's stylistically like Altman at all. But he has such respect for him that he can fill those shoes so easily. And I, and I'm somebody I, I really do love a Prairie Home Companion, that Altman film. It's a really beautiful kind of farewell to Altman. Um, I think it's aged pretty well too. Uh, and it does like this has so many characters, but so knowing how much he loves Altman, obviously shortcuts was what? 1991. I thought it was three, but you might be right. In that general area, and you got to think, he is probably had to have seen it a few times. And there's no way that the frogs at the end of this thing are not a direct reference to what happens at the end of Shortcuts. You got a record contract? Not yet. Give the clue for the bus if you show me some trust. Have you ever been to Juvenile Hall? I ain't fucking with you. Hey, watch the mouth. Watch it. Come on, man. Just watch me. Watch and listen. Okay. Presents. With a double-ass minicus I bestow. With my riff and my frubbachito hit me though. Think fast, kiss me oh, cause I throw what I know with the resonance. For your trouble ass, feed it in the wind yourself off of the back of the shelf. Jackass, crackers, body stackers, dick two niggas, master oh, pain yo Hold it, homeboy. I don't need to hear that word. Living to get older with a chip on your shoulder? Except you think you got a grip, cause your hip got a holster. Ain't no confessor, so buster, you better just shut the fuck up. Try to listen oh, and learn. Oh, 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 cut it, Coolio. I've had enough with the mouth and the language. I'm almost done. Finish it up without the lip. Check that eagle, come off it. I'm the prophet, the professor. I'ma teach you about the worm, who eventually turned to catch wreck. With the neck of a long time oppressor. And he's running from the devil, but the debt is always gaining. And if he's worth being hurt, he's worth bringing pain in. When the sunshine don't work, the good Lord be the rain in. And that shit will, will help you solve the case. Hey, j- just a question, because I, 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 did, did, the, did the rap actually tell him who killed the guy? <laughs> I, didn't, uh, I don't think so direct like i think the kid thought that he was he said there's something about a mystery and he i don't think he actually really knows but he's got an idea and did, did we did he did they catch worm was worm the one trying to shoot him when he lost his gun wait i thought that kid was worm no worm is played by orlando jones oh worm okay then worm was cut out from basically the entire film right yeah, Worm's not in it. He actually never shows up. And I I bet, uh-huh. you know, I've always kind of thought it probably is Worm shooting at him. Um, and more to me, I think that moment of the film, it's not about basically Worm shooting at him. It's not about those elements of it. It's about the way the other police officers look at John C. Riley, the way they perceive him, and the way he is as an officer. Um, you know, he's the one who finds the dead body, and then when he tries to talk – yeah. They basically tell him, like, you can basically not talk. Be quiet. Um, and he just casually puts his arms, you know, folds his arms, goes about his business. He knows his – basically, he knows his spot within the L.A. Police Department. And I think that's, you know, a really smart thing for PTA to do. He basically creates a hierarchy in just a couple of seconds with these officers. 
And so I, I do. I love the definition that PTA gives to the John C. Riley character. I think it's a really in-depth uh, characterization because he's not purely good. He's not purely bad. Um, he is one of the more likable characters in the movie, if you're going to say there are likable characters in this movie. Uh, but he does use his kind of benefit of being a police officer to talk to Melora Walters. So he does have a little bit of a predatory streak like in that regard. Um, but I do. I think John C. Riley's so good in this movie. I would say that the if if there's a likable character, it's it's probably um, Phil the nurse, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Yeah, but he did kill a dog. He did murder. Not, him. Well, not murder. Yeah, he didn't murder him. He dog slaughtered. It was just dog slaughter. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I think Phil Parma is he is the inherently the one doing kind of the benevolent act, but at the same time, his you know Earl Parch's wife knows he doesn't want to talk to. Um, he doesn't want to talk to Frank T.J. Mackey. He doesn't want to talk to the Tom Cruise character. So is the Philip Seymour Hoffman doing something bad in that regard where he's basically letting an old senile man, senile man now make a decision? What did you think of uh, the Earl Partridge uh, performance, uh, Jason Robards? How did you think he did? And performances in general, really? Uh, amazing? Wonderful? Yeah, Robards knocked it out of the park. There's, I, you know... To think this year that Michael Caine won Best Supporting Actor is insane. He beat Tom Cruise, Philip Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He beat all these guys. Obviously, Tom Cruise is the only one nominated, but it's insane to me in a year you have a such a vanilla performance. that Basically, Michael Caine, sleep, he sleepwalks through Cider House Rules. And Tom Cruise is so alive. Jason Robards is un- – he's so – like you hate him and you love him at the same time. And that's you, something that you, he does really I well. I mean that, that Michael Caine one, that, that was a Lifetime Achievement Award basically, right? That no, was he'd, already, a, he'd already won it. Then I have no clue. I mean it's – the Oscars don't matter is what it is. No, but it, I mean the Robards performance is – and it gets at it, – it gets at what I think – Paul Thomas Anderson gets so right in the way that he creates these characters is there are no good guys, no bad guys. No, like they're all humans with flaws and they are in general, like attempting to, and some later than others, some earlier than others attempting to do the right thing and, or atone for uh, their sins or, you know, step in the right direction or get away from the, uh, find, find a way to recover from trauma. You know, it's, it's this thing where he understands that people are contradictory to themselves. And instead of saying, okay, well, let's water it down and let's figure out how, how to make that clear. He kind of, he leans into it and he uses that as the, uh, as the catalyst for, um, driving through the world of these characters. And that's, I think that's the only way you get a monologue like that one Robarts gives is by creating a character that fully dimensional to have those contradictions and live with them and then get introspective about them. A different director, somebody who's less humane 
doesn't write the Julianne Moore character that way. Mm-hmm. You know, she has a very complex emotional journey where she essentially realizes, I actually love my husband. I have been horrible to him. And I need to now find some way to repay my sins. Yeah. And I think obviously that's a huge theme in this movie. But, you know, uh, to me, I don't know my favorite performance in the movie, but I think Tom Cruise is such a standout. Maybe because he's such a big performance. But it's huge. It's huge. Like he is playing Frank T.J. Mackey so big. But at the same time, there are those moments where the camera just sits on his face during the interview. There is an extreme close-up that it cuts to, and he's just sitting there silent. But he's also kind of shaking a little bit. Uh-huh. One thing I thought about that character uh, when he, he said that he would drop kick the dog – uh, drop kick the dogs that they got near him. That was the kind of uh, rough brutality that we see uh, from Daniel Day Lewis, and there will be blood. And and it, it made me think like that's you know if he were available, that might have been who he picked, who he would pick to play uh, uh, T.J. Mackey. I, I think uh, T.J. Mackey was written specifically for Cruz. Yeah, I think in one of the reasons. Well, I'm just I'm just saying at a, at a different part point yeah, yeah, in, sure. in in PT sure. Anderson, that's who he would have picked. And let's just be glad for all of us that he didn't, because the way Daniel Day Lewis uh, commits to roles, we have no clue what he would have done to prepare for Frank T.J. Oh, Mackey. Gosh. The thing that I find interesting about that moment with the dogs is he gets a little more aggressive, like as he repeats himself. That very first time, like he's just like, "Hey Phil, if that dog comes near me, I'm gonna drop kick it." Like, like it's just matter of fact, it's like he begins it with, Hey Phil, like just, just so you know, this is what's going to happen if I, if I get touched by a dog. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to come to your house while you're asleep and slit your throat or whatever it is that Daniel Plainview says. Like that's that same level of just like misplaced brutality. I don't know if it's a PT Anderson thing or it's, 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 or what it is, but it just, it seems so similar to that to me. It's, it played those same chords. Well, there's two things about the Tom Cruise character that I think that are really interesting. One is that he does have, he has a propensity for violence, a propensity to kind of explode in a way that maybe only Tom Cruise would like really be able to do. And I think the reason he's, is able to do it is because that character of Frank T.J. Mackey, what's he feel like? He feels like a cult leader. Mm-hmm. And Tom Cruise mm-hmm. is famously one of the most outspoken Scientologists on the planet. Um, so I think I think that certainly is part of the casting of Tom Cruise. Is He would, you know, I think there's a lot of David Miscavige in Tom Cruise's performance. Just because he's close to it. Um, and I think... What is so striking about that performance by Tom Cruise, though, is how much vulnerability he lets in from the beginning. Like, from the absolute beginning. Because this is, I think, really smart about what PTA does is that he lets Frank T.J. Mackey come on stage, give that absurd monologue about respecting the cock. And then the next time you see him, I'm pretty sure a guy's basically talking about how this girl at work... She's his friend, but he wants to be yeah. more. She doesn't really love him. And he's down on his knee. He's hold, like he's holding the guy. And he says, you know, I don't think there's anyone here who can't relate to your pain. And that's, I think that's the thing that PTA latches onto with that character. Yes, he is this insane 
womanizing, um, basically pickup artist, but he also has a genuine humanity in some way to him that he can connect to people on a one-to-one level, which is really, I think, in the Cruise performance. Not another actor would have been able to do that. Tom Cruise may not have as many tools in his acting tool belt as some other performers, but his best tool in in every role is just sheer unbridled intensity. Mm-hmm. He has the ability to like look near the camera and just light the whole screen up, and he he brings that in in every single scene. What do you guys think the actual like real world success of Frank Mackey is? I don't think he slept with a woman in like two years. If I was gonna actually like guess. I think it's all testosterone. It's all driving adrenaline. I think he feeds himself all of his machismo and he thinks he's sleeping with women, but I don't think he actually like, I don't think he has in so long. And he kind of alludes to that. He's like, Oh, he's like, women see me and immediately they're like, Oh, I know this guy. I know his tricks. He kind of alludes to that. Maybe he hasn't actually slept somebody in a while. It really like just hit me hard when we see it's, it's either in the middle of the rainstorm or maybe right as the rain is ending. He's We see him sitting in that Saturn outside of his father's house. And then you realize, like, this guy drives a Saturn. What's, what's really going on here? Like, yeah, he can fill a, you know, a hotel auditorium, but that's probably, you know, those people that show up, those are the people that follow him and that's it. You know, he can, and that's his rush. He, that's his sex yeah, is talking to those he can, people. He can make a living. He can make those connections, but he's probably pretty lonely and pretty isolated and not, you know, he's not the super rock star financially or otherwise that he presents himself as. He's clearly lonely. He's lying about his mom being alive to just look like he has some sort of uh, emotional connection to any other human is what it seems like when really just abuses his assistance and uh, and, and seemingly has, has nobody to care about in his Well, that I, I will say that moment where he yells at, I think her name is Janet, and basically, do your job. Yeah. I wonder if that's how he always says, because that to me seems like a pretty normal reaction of like, he has now found out his father's trying to contact him. He wants nothing to do with him. It seems like it's been at least like 15 years. Um, and he's, he's thrown for a emotional loop and he just had somebody question him really more of like an investigative journalist coming at him and saying like, no, I know you're a fraud. I know you're a liar. Um, for the first time he's really being challenged. And I think that's what rattles him and throws him off his, his game in a lot of ways. And that's why. When you see him back on stage in the um, was it seduce and destroy, he can't he can't keep it together because mm-hmm. the facade is now starting to fall around him. He knows the the gigs up essentially. So, not to change the subject, is it a P.T. Anderson signature to have a character be revealed as a pedophile in the third act? Not that I can. I don't think so. I, I think the answer. I don't is no. think there's anything else in the in the future. Now, I think the biggest thing with Boogie Nights in this was that you kind of knew it was going to happen. Boogie Nights, like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with this, I think it is, you know, it's this movie's all about how parents ruin their children's lives um, and make them, you know, obviously. I don't think PTA had the best childhood, but at the same time, he dedicates this movie to his father 
and then Fiona Apple, which Fiona Apple's an odd one. This is what they broke up like a year later. Yeah. He married Maya Rudolph a couple years later. So this is also the, the first film that he released under the Goulardi film company, which is his production company, which Goulardi was the character that his father played when he was like a television, the local television show host in Ohio. Like he would play like, midnight movies and stuff and dress up as a character and throw throw firecrackers on stage. I think that really draws PTA to these characters is that, yeah, I think he may have had a difficult relationship with his parents or his family or his upbringing. But at the same time, I think he loves his family. Mm-hmm. He still loves his parents. They may have been hard on him or they may have treated him in ways that he didn't want, but he still loves them. Yeah. And that's, I think, at every turn of this movie, you're seeing Tom Cruise. He, yeah, he's incredibly angry at Earl Partridge, but he can't not tell him. Essentially, like he essentially says, "I love you." Still, and he wants, he doesn't want him to go away. Um, and he becomes basically back to a fetal position on the couch. Next time you see him, same thing. Um, you know. Stanley goes to his dad at the very end and says, you know, you need, you need to be nicer to me. Dad, and the dad basically shrugs him off. He's like, shut up. Go back to bed. And he says, no, you need to be nicer to me. So, you know, I, you know, is there any actual resolution at the end of the movie for these characters? No, but it's, no, no, but not it's not, but it's, it's also aware that it's, not going to end as a movie that has a resolution because this is a, I mean, and that's also where there, there is this cyclical thing. I mean, how many times do people say we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. I mean, it, it's at least three, maybe four times. It's, I think he's very aware of this sort of cyclical thing that he's building. And that's, I think that's all part of the theme that he sets up with that prologue as well. well. And it's all about myth too. And I, that's why I love, um, you know, the, the quote where he says, you know, as the book says, yes, what book, what book is this? Like <laughs> there's no book around. Um, and he basically says, this is a myth strap in. And really though, I don't think a lot of these people are that exaggerated. Like their lives aren't that exaggerated. Like there's got to be plenty of people who actually live these kinds of lives. Mm-hmm. Now he may, I think the exaggeration comes in putting them all in this one tight, close knit uh, film. Yeah, but there's not an exaggeration in what they are actually going through. It all seems pretty normal, and a lot of normal may not be the right word, but it all seems relatively plausible. So my last question for you guys. What is this what was this movie about? Like if you had to sum up like the theme or 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 just like overall what was this movie trying to say in like a sentence? What did you guys take away from this movie? Human relationships are hard but worth continuing to pursue. Something along the lines of everyone does bad things. We all make mistakes, but we're all worthy for a second chance. We're all worthy of forgiveness and Essentially, nobody can judge you that doesn't know you because that's the that's a lot of the John C. Riley character. He essentially sums this movie up when he says, is, you know, this is a hard job. I have to decide 
on a day-to-day basis. Who deserves forgiveness? Who deserves to go to jail? And who was basically trying to do right? I absolutely agree that the John C. Riley monologue at the end definitely summed it up. But my takeaway more was around kind of how it was framed about this is more than coincidence and then having the, 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 the raining frogs thing. It was more like God or the universe or something has all, uh, all things sort of interconnected and people are going through sort of the same struggles and it's all about forgiveness, self-forgiveness, forgiveness of other people. That, that was kind of my takeaway from it. But what I love about this movie is it is enough of a of an allegory or a fable to allow you to sort of draw your own conclusions from it. In no way is it conclusive. And I think that goes back to what you guys were saying about about Kubrick's approach to filmmaking. Uh, it, it, it raises a lot of questions. It does not answer them. And it leaves it entirely up to you to define your own takeaway from this movie. I don't think there's a right interpretation of it, at least not on sort of my first viewing. Well, and I think like a lot of great art, it's about... 77 million things at once. Like <laughs> he threw a lot of the screen. There's obviously things that rise to the surface, but you know, if somebody came away saying, well, it's about, you know, trying to recover from past trauma. That's, that's absolutely right. That's, that's mm-hmm. on point two, but it's also what speaks to you, what matters to you. Uh, and I think the forgiveness thing, the redemption narrative of it, the people searching for, goodness within themselves. Yeah, but you could also come out of it with a pure religious take on it. This is purely God. This is about um, defining your relationship with a father and being a father and how you treat your kids or if you want to say how God treats people and what he puts them through. You could completely walk away with that point of view and you would not be wrong either. There's no no one take on this one and I, I really appreciate that. This could definitely be 15 different Job stories. Yeah. And from that note, how about we move into funniest moments, guys? (laughs) Sure. Jake, you seem to to actually enjoy this movie, but it's not. I would say this one is definitely kind of like Rushmore uh, last time. This one's it's much less of a comedy than most PTA films. I think Um, it was a little a little tougher for me to narrow in on what what I liked, what did, did anything stick out to you as particularly humorous? Give you the chuckles, man, this, this was, this was a tougher one, but I, I I think the thing that made me laugh the most was after the little kid did his rapping, uh, John C. Riley's reaction for the rest of that scene. There's like the shot over the kid's head with, with John C. Riley there. He's like, okay, whatever that meant. Sure was helpful. Ice T gets in the car. He's like, I'm through playing games. Be cool. Stay in school. Like that whole interaction, that whole thing, that had me laughing into the next scene. Just as he drove off, it's, get out of the street, move it. Like that whole thing was hilarious. And it takes someone like John C. Riley to properly deliver that too. Absolutely. It was. It was definitely yeah, and, written just for him. But yeah, not not a funny movie. Not a lot of humor in this one. No. Um, a, a, just a, a couple moments, but it, it's so dark and so much of a downer. That they are, are few and far between, and and mostly either laughing at Tom Cruise or or laughing at at John C. Riley's little quirks that he he puts in every role that he plays. What about you, Peterson? I'm between two moments. One is the tidy whitey wearing uh, <laughs> Frank T.J. Mackey <laughs> flexing, and I'll say Tom Cruise has got a killer bod. I mean, he looks he looks good in this movie. Um, 
But that's one reason you know this guy is certainly not with the ladies because he's got tidy whities They're like baggy kind of. I mean, it's it's, it's the a, 90s. It is not what you'd expect this guy to wear, one. Uh, so I think that moment's pretty funny. Um, and and then the moment that I love so much is right after it when he's buttoning his shirt up and the <laughs> lady across from him says, you missed a button. And it's funny, one, because it catches him off guard. And it, two, it sets her up as like, I'm not going to let this guy get away with anything. Um, yeah. And then the other one is the moment where Melora Walters and John C. Riley are having dinner and she goes, uh, would you like to kiss me? And he goes, yes, I would. <laughs> and it's this incredibly earnest line reading that only John C. Riley can do with that kind of earnestness. Yeah. He's like, yes, I would. Um, and it's just the way he reads it, I, I think is absolutely hysterical. Man, he is such a like uh, underappreciated actor in my opinion, just maybe because he's done so many comedies recently, but he, he can really do good things with the role. I guess I'm going to be the only one who doesn't reference John C. Riley. My my favorite moment. It's just a little, a little line delivery, but it's when William H Macy's uh, quiz kid Donnie Smith goes to Solomon. Solomon is is his boss's name, correct? Played by Alfred Molina. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah. He goes to Solomon. Solomon of Solomon. Solomon. Solomon Solomon store and you know he's he's trying to convince him well I need to get this oral surgery to get braces and his uh I don't know if it's his brother Solomon's brother or his right hand man whatever he's just sort of standing almost like so far back in frame that he's almost obscured and he goes you got struck by lightning that time you went to Tahoe for vacation I don't think braces are a good idea like just the and it's more deadpan than that. It's just like the way that he's just, you know, connecting that is like true sincerity. Yeah. 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 He, he is using like pure logic of like you should not put metal in, into your body if you got struck by lightning one time. But to a completely absurd premise. It's amazing. I, I forgot about that. Line. Well, it's, that was just, awesome. it's just the way that it's it's one of those little things where he's built this, you know, he's built this world and he doesn't need the joke there, but the joke sells so well and it's just executed perfectly. Um, it was, it was a nice reprieve from, you know, especially at that point in the movie, we're ramping up. Uh, and so it was nice to get a little bit of, a little bit of funds, man, Jake, I'm, I'm glad you, it seems like you at least we're turning a corner here. This, this feels like progress. Uh, so I've got to ask you, in the uh, ranking of the Anderson anthology, so this is our sort of hierarchy of of Wes Anderson films, P.T. Anderson films. Um, does this qualify as an Anderson A-list? Top of the top, tip of the top, cream of the crop? Or would you put it as a deep dive? A, a movie that's worth checking out if you're really into P.T. Anderson, but you wouldn't recommend it just anyone. Or do you think this falls into purely for Paul's Papa? Which actually might be a little appropriate because it was written for his father. <laughs> Man, so clearly, like, I got a lot of enjoyment out of this one. And I am in, in no way saying this is like a, a, a 10 out of 10 or this is a uh, uh, just a, a classic that I can just tell anybody to go watch. And and I also don't think it's a bad movie, but I also could see somebody watching it and being like, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. 
And so it makes it really tough to slot it in. I got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of Rules Don't Apply. <laughs> I think that's an amazing movie. A lot of people don't agree with me there. So uh, if it's allowed, I'm going to say this is purely for purely a deep dive for Anderson's A-list. Like it's somehow it, it's superimposed in all three categories at once. I cannot nail it down. They've interconnected in, in some yeah. metatextual <laughs> way. Yeah, Which makes sense it's going for this through, movie. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's going it through all three of those at the same time. So that might be a cop out, but but that's where I've got to rank this one. Hey, I'll accept it. You you technically got your first Anderson A list. Yeah, sort of. Yes, so and also my first purely for Paul's Papa. For you, it's probably an Anderson A list, but for your coworker who is like, oh, what movie should I watch? Oh, definitely go watch Magnolia tonight. What'd you watch last night? Oh, uh, you know. Bridesmaids? Sure. All right, Peterson, what about you? Where does where does this fall for you? I really do love this movie. Um, I have a really hard time thinking about it as anything less than an Anderson A-list. It's, you know, I'll say, again, it's a movie for probably two or three years of my life I thought was, the you know, one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie. Um, it's not quite that anymore, but it's certainly still an Anderson A-list for me. I think, you know... I don't begrudge anyone who walks into this and says, what in the hell did you just have me watch? Yeah. Like I can imagine if this thing came out today, it would get an F cinema score. People are walking out. It is not something that people would have the patience for. Now that's also people knowing that, you know, if you go to boogie nights, it's fun. It's buoyant. It's kind of this exciting hip new movie. Then you have this three hour like funeral dirge of a movie, basically. Um, and I, I, you know, I could certainly see people just walking out and saying, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. I can never watch this again, which was kind of the, the sentiment at the time. It was either an Anderson A-list or like a uh, purely for Paul's Papa. There was no middle ground, really. People either loved it or hated it. Um, for me, though, it's definitely an Anderson A-list. I can't find it in any, any other category. But what about you, Chris? I was deeply concerned coming into this, as you know. Um, I think I got to go Anderson A-list as well. Like, as I have, you know, I have quibbles here and there. I think it could be a little shorter. I think there are uh, there are things that uh, are indulgent, but I think he pulls it off. And I think, you know, it's it's the type of thing that you guys are right. Like, you can't just recommend this to anyone. But I think it's also the type of movie that, you know, if if some, you know, 17-year-old kid who's finally kind of reaching out and getting beyond, you know, the whatever's new in theaters phase and trying to, you know, get get into cinema, if they just happened upon this movie, I could easily see how this would be their favorite movie for you know, for years because it has so much to mine as far as, you know, he, he has packed so much into the frame, so much into the script, so much into just all of the, the, the content that makes it up that, uh, it's, it, it, it is a film bursting with ambition. Yeah. It is exploding with ambition. Yeah, and somehow doesn't go a Southland Tales route and fall completely off the tracks. 
which is even about 30 minutes in i thought these guys make me watch another southland sales <laughs> like uh, i was a little concerned and then they broke out into song and you were like oh no yeah i was like oh no they did they did make me watch another southland tales well chris with this incredibly uplifting very wet film what are we going to be enjoying with our uh with our watch oh man i so i was thinking just with the runtime i should probably go something low abv something real sessionable and then i got to looking at the you know beers that i have logged on untapped and i realized i don't really drink many sessionable like four point whatever or below beers uh and so i decided to just go the opposite direction and to, to go with some a, a bit of a different connection here. Uh, so I'm I'm pairing this with Old Rasputin Russian Imperial Stout from North Coast Brewing Company in Fort Braggs, California. Uh, this is coming in at a 9% ABV, so certainly not the highest beer I've ever recommended, but it's still it's still up there. It's still, you know, if you continue drinking throughout this thing. You're making us earn these minutes. Yeah, you're you're really gonna you're you're gonna have to stretch it out. Um, so nine percent ABV, seventy five percent IBU, which I think is pretty impressive for uh, for an imperial stout. But it's you know the the connection here being that you know it's named after Rasputin, who um, himself killing him was an endurance test. Getting through this movie may feel like an endurance test initially. I think it's it's the type of thing that actually opens up and gets, you know, it gets easier as you go along versus like a harder slog. And that's also something with this beer. Like it could be on first sip, it might feel a little overwhelming for you. But I guarantee you, if you kind of sit with it a while, let it warm up a little bit. I think it actually being an imperial Russian imperial stout, it actually the flavors really open up as it warms up um, and it just gets better and better and sort of starts to bloom as it reaches room temperature. I'd, I'd pop this thing open and give it about 30 minutes before you actually start going after it. That's why I, that's why I called Rasputin. What, what I was going to say is you, you pop it open and you just, you just sip it through the whole thing. And so I think that as, as the flavor really picks up, um and gets gets better and better the movie as well moves in in directions and and you're going to get things that you weren't even expecting that you couldn't have even foreseen in the first sip um so that's that is why this one is is paired with uh, magnolia maybe not the most obvious choice but uh i think i think it'll do well i think you'll enjoy it just don't overdo it that's old rasputin from north coast brewing company Magnolia is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email is your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. Our really rad recommendations are coming up next. Hey, it's the end of the world now. Haven't you heard so? Smoke them if you got em. Boys and girls, say goodbye to the past now. Raise up your glass and revel while it lasts. It's the end of the world. Sometimes I am afraid to die. My flesh and bones won't testify. My enemies and friends share the same residence. But don't you love 
apologize on my behalf I'm a long way from my epitaph I'm only getting started on this lost highway All right, guys, it's time for Really Red Recommendations once again. Jake, you enjoyed this film. Do you have another enjoyable film to recommend for us this time? Yeah, I actually have one of my favorite films to recommend. It is the most loose connection to uh, or most tenuous connection for a recommendation I've had in a while. But uh, a lot of people, when they see uh, here, thus spoke Zarathustra, and they see an old man in a in a bed in a room, they think... Uh, uh, 2001 a space odyssey think of the old man from jupiter and beyond the infinite mm-hmm. it's not what i think i think of uh the other famous film to use thus spoke zarathustra with an old man uh sick and dying in a bed 1979's being there by hal ashby <laughs> it, it, it is it is one of my absolute favorite films i love watching this i I like to watch it every every couple of years if I can, just because I, I get so much out of it. Uh, Peter Sellers with one of his best performances, uh, Shirley MacLaine, Melvin Douglas is the old man dying in the bed in that particular movie. Um, but if you if you want to know my full opinions and Chris's and and our our friend Phil Lucia's opinion as well, uh, we actually did a War Starts at Midnight review on being there uh, probably about last year this time I think. And uh, and I definitely suggest listening to that as well. Um, I could talk about this movie all day. This, this is one of my favorites. Have you seen this one, Peterson? Ashby's one of those guys who I've seen some of it, not others. And this is definitely on the must see list. I would say, yeah. yeah. And not just if you like Ashby, but just just in general. I, I legitimately think you would like like this movie, and not and and I know I like it, which means you probably are going to hate it. But you should you should go and watch this movie. Um, it is on a, a Criterion Blu-ray, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it, it, it's on Criterion. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll, I'll blind buy it next uh, next fifty percent off sale. You should recommend, and then and then listen to our strangely theologically charged uh, review. I should I shouldn't say charged, but filled. It is one of my favorite um, reviews we did. Like it, it is one I I, I like because we went we went kind of deep on that one. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Phil. Yeah. What about you, Peterson? What do you have to recommend? Yeah. So I've seen a couple things over the last few weeks, but my mother-in-law was in town over the past week. She actually left this morning. When I got home on Saturday night, they were putting on a movie. They were they decided on 50-50, my wife and my mother-in-law. It's a movie I haven't seen since it came out in 2011. And I remember really liking it. I remember having really genuine affection for it. And about 20 minutes in, I was like, did I just forget how good this movie is. And as it kept going on, I just fell more and more into it. Uh, so it's about Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a young man based on the writer, Will Reiser. It's based on his real life. Um, it's also Paul Reiser's brother. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a young man who gets diagnosed with cancer. He essentially has a 50-50 chance of living. Seth Rogen is his best friend. Bryce Dallas Howard is his girlfriend. Uh, Anna Kendrick plays his therapist and 
It is about this young man who essentially has done everything right in his life. He's kind of checked off all the boxes of, well, I I eat healthy and I make sure, you know, my house is clean. All the things that like you should be doing, he does. And he still gets cancer. And he is faced with his own mortality. And it is a really, I think, honest look at what that would be like. But it's also incredibly funny because Seth Rogen, who I think is genuinely fantastic in this movie. Like he, I think he brings, one, he is very funny. But two, it turns out he really loves his best friend. He really cares about him. It's not just a, because the whole gag is, oh, he's trying to use Joseph Gordon-Levitt to score checks. And yeah, that is part of it. But it's also, there's much more depth to that uh, as well. And, you know, it's a really genuinely heartfelt movie that, you know, had me pretty close to tears two or three times throughout it. Um, it's it's a really, really uh, satisfying little movie. It's small. It's not a huge movie. But I think by the end of it, it's a really pretty impactful little thing. Uh, and that's 5050 by Jonathan Levine. You can find it on Netflix. Uh, it's obviously out on Blu-ray as well. Um, yeah, so 5050. Chris, what, what about you? What do you have to recommend? Strangely enough, I also have a Hal Ashby film to recommend, but I'm recommending his 1978 film, Coming Home. Uh, this stars Jane Fonda, John Voight, and Bruce Dern, and deals with a lot of similar issues on a smaller scale, uh, but of sort of the vulnerability of humanity and of trying to overcome trauma and... Uh, just sort of navigate a world in, you know, as as humans that are imperfect. But as, you know, PTA puts his touch on Magnolia, uh, this is very much from the vantage point of, you know, only Hal Ashby could have made Coming Home, I think. It's a film about um, John Voight plays Luke Martin, who is a Marine who's come back from Vietnam after losing his leg legs. Jane Fonda plays Sally Hyde, who is, uh, she's married to Bruce Dern's character, Captain Bob Hyde. He goes off to, to Vietnam, leaves her at home. So she starts volunteering at like the VA hospital and kind of, uh, begins taking care of Voight's character. And they sort of fall in love in a, uh, first, sort of platonic way and then it goes beyond that and it's uh it's a really beautiful little film and uh explores humanity explores vietnam um and everything in between in in the way only ashby could uh and i think a lesser viewed ashby film as well so for that alone i think it's worth uh it's worth checking out. It is a little bit harder to find. I couldn't find it streaming anywhere, but there is a pretty good Blu-ray um, out there that you can pick up. Uh, I would recommend it. I would recommend this as a blind buy as well um, for, I mean, for performances alone, but uh, so much beyond that also. Uh, it's very good. Check it out. Really, Hal Ashby's the only one who could have made this because he's the only one who would put a shot of Hal Ashby randomly driving a car in a movie. That's true. <laughs> That that is this one, right? Yeah, an identical car. <laughs> it's it's basically an identical car to the car that Jane Fonda is driving. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. 
Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the work of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing Wes's own story of a dysfunctional family and a father dying of cancer, the Royal Tenenbaums. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us go to the Midnight Warrior Clan and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at DrewHolcomb.com. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey, a master of the muffin and author of Seduce and Destroy system, now available to you on video and audio cassette. Seduce and Destroy will teach you the techniques to have any hard body blondes dripping to wet your dock. I'm through playing games. Be cool, stay in school, okay? Get out of the street now. Move it. Move it.